Amen. Please remain standing. Don't sit down quite yet. We're going to read the word together in Ephesians chapter 4 while the choir and the orchestra come down. We have been studying Ephesians 4 for quite some time and uh, feeling led to continue right on into the next few verses today entitled One Call, Building a Strong Family Through the Call that God Has Issued to Each of Us Individually. It's a call to serve. And so we're going to talk about that call to serve this morning in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He also descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Let's pray together. God, what a joy it is for us to come together today on this beautiful day. I was talking to one earlier today and they said they were tempted with the weather to kind of stay home. (laughs) Uh, We haven't seen this kind of weather in quite some time. It's kind of like spring. I think the birds are kind of a little bit confused as well, and so was I when I got up and realized it was so beautiful outside today and such a beautiful day to come, to gather together as believers in one place today, in this place, to honor, to magnify, and to glorify you, Heavenly Father, for who you are and for where you reign. You are our Father God, who is in all, above all, and through all. And you're here in this place because your spirit is present and resides within us as your people. Jesus, we thank you for being that wonderful, marvelous gift, that gift of atonement who took upon yourself our sins against the Father and died in our place. What a joy it is for us to be able to come and to sing praises to you and to be present among your people and to acknowledge our oneness of faith in you as Lord and Savior of our lives. Spirit, we know that you dwell in this place because you dwell in our hearts, so move freely among us. It's not that you need permission, but we yield ourselves and we commit to be open to whatever it is you want to bring into our lives through instruction and inspiration and conviction, if necessary, to move us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the joy and for the opportunity Use it for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. That was God calling on that phone, by the way, so I just want to let you know. Let me ask you a question as we start. What are your assets? If you were to go to a bank, and we have a few bankers here, and they would say, uh, you want a loan? Yeah. What are your assets? What is the collateral that you bring to the table? What do you possess? What do you own? And some of us would more than likely produce a sheet that describe the collateral, which is in the form of our assets that we believe that are ours, that can sort of levy uh, this negotiating thing with the bank in regards to a loan. So what are your assets today? How would you define or describe them if you were to go to a bank and ask for a loan? And you would use for collateral. What do you own? I'm going to say, well, I don't own my house. The bank does. Uh, Some of you have houses that are paid off. Good for you. I hope to be there one of these days. Uh, But I'm not there yet. 
Some of us would say, well, my car, I I own and possess a car, so it's one of my assets. And someone might say, well, I have clothes. And someone else might say, well, I have a bank account. Someone else might say, I have a portfolio, and I may have uh, some stocks and some bonds and some mutual funds and those kind of things that are a part of my portfolio. They are my assets. And then some of us in the form of teenagers or maybe uh, young college students or young adults say, my only asset is my stereo or my Wii station, or my Xbox. That's about all I have, which is not much collateral. Although the Xbox costs about 500 bucks, so that's, that's a pretty substantial amount, pretty good collateral. But, you, you know, you, you have a tendency, I think, to sort of gather together all of those things that are yours in possession. You call them assets. You call them yours. And if someone were to take them from you and to use them for their own use or some other use that that you've not granted permission for, uh, there would be some sort of catastrophic thing that would happen between you and that person. I can remember when I was growing up in my house that we had, I had my things and my brother had his things and my sister had his things and, and we did not, you know, mutually exchange those things without permission. And may I add that I always had the cool stuff and my brother always wanted my stuff. I know there are several families here that have multiple siblings and maybe all boys in some of them. And uh, it always used to strike me odd when my brother would come into the kitchen for breakfast on the way to school and have on a shirt that belonged to me. There would be some words that would be exchanged, as you can imagine. You know, we have a tendency, I think, to assess what we possess and to claim it as our own and to use it for ourselves. But what God has given us in the form of Jesus Christ is not an asset that is ours, but it's a living trust that we are then to be representative of that living trust and to be good stewards. By that meaning, we are to use what God has given to us individually for the overall good of the body of Christ. Yes, he did endow us with certain assets, but those assets are not ours to use as we freely desire and deserve that we think that we need, but we are to use those in order to enhance or to bless the body of Christ. We've seen so far in Ephesians chapter 4 where God has called us through the penmanship and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of Paul to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. There's a, a calling in order for us as believers to walk a certain way, to live our lives according to the, to the life that we claim to have and possess in Christ. We've identified and we've talked about that. But it's also a calling not only to walk, but it's a calling to watch. And we've been defining for several Sundays now the the guarding of the unity of the body of Christ and that we, under the power of one, are to guard the unity that we possess because we have one hope, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father of all, above all, in all, and through all. So we are coming together and we must guard and we must protect, we must watch that unity that we have in Christ and to preserve and protect that at all costs because we are in Christ one church, one body who serve one Lord and who claim to have one faith. It's not unusual now through inspiration of the Holy Spirit for God then to divinely inspire the Apostle Paul to move from the, the walk and the watch right into now the work. 
And as I think about it and talk about the work, and I've been kind of sort of getting ready for it all week, I can't help but in the back of my mind, we sang a hymn that I remember as a child, but there's another hymn that was sung way before I was even born. It's the old hymn, we'll work till Jesus comes, we'll work. How many know that song? Till Jesus, you know that song? I just, it just rings in my head when I talk about the word work. You know, that was the old hymn, that we are going to work until Jesus comes. And some of us say, you know, when is this work going to be over? It's not over until we die, until he returns. And so there's a work that God has called us to as one body, as individual members of the body of Christ. As we come together, we have a responsibility then to work together individually and corporately to fulfill then the great commission that God has for us as a church. And that work is described for us in this beautiful passage through the call that God has extended to us. It's the call to walk, a call to watch the unity, to preserve it and guard and protect the unity. But it's a call to work. You have been called to work. You have not been called, as the old-timey preacher said, to sit soaking sour in the pew. You've been called to work. And I'm convinced the longer you sit, the longer you sour. Because I've learned that the most complainers in a church are the ones that do the least work. The ones that are the loudest are the ones that give the least in order for the corporate body to accomplish and achieve the great commission that God has called her to accomplish and to achieve. And so here we see in this passage that the Apostle Paul, under divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, first of all, talks about and describes the people that have been called to serve. Notice in the text the people that are called to serve. Beginning of verse 7, let's take a look at the text. We're going to look at it sort of phrase by phrase here. And in that first point, the, the people that God has called to serve. Notice he says, but grace... My brother-in-law, who pastors Roswell Street Baptist Church, had a series of sermons entitled, The Butts of the Bible. Yeah. And he wrote a book. And I have one. I've always thought that was an odd title. But, uh, you know, there are a lot of these B-U-T words in the Bible. And this is one of the verses where we have, but grace. And we see in this word, but, which also means, however is a word in which the Apostle Paul, under divine inspiration of the Spirit of God, is transitioning now from what we might say the, the big picture to the individual member of the body of Christ. So far, we have described now a walk that is individual, and then he moves to the broader scope. He sort of gives us a canvas, so to speak, of the whole body. One Lord, one faith, you know, one baptism, one hope, one all of these things. And he talks about the bigger picture, the corporate body of Christ and how the body fits together. And now in this verse, verse 7, after having depicted this larger scope of the unity and the oneness that we have in Christ, he now narrows down the focus to the individual responsibility we have in the larger picture of the body of Christ. And he's about to describe now the individual responsibility that we have to the corporate body of the church. For the whole is as strong as the individual. And he moves from the whole to the individual. And he says, but grace. Grace is a beautiful word. But if you're not careful, you'll misunderstand or misrepresent the intention of the verse. He's talking here about grace, not about saving grace. But it is always good to mention saving grace. Because who of us would be saved without grace? 
Paul has identified in Ephesians, for by grace you are saved through faith, in that it is not of yourselves, but it is the gift of God. Grace is the unmerited, the undeserved gift of salvation. To those who deserve condemnation and hell, he bestows upon us grace. There's saving grace. And saving grace is limitless. Aren't you glad? Where now, all of a sudden, after several years of living the Christian life, God says to you, oh, you've used up all your grace, you get no more. Some of us say, well, I'm, I'd be okay with that. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. Because you need more and more and more and more in grace. While we should not sin so that grace can abound, yet in the reality of our own carnality and our own depravity, we know that there's no way in the world that we can live perfect lives every day of the week. And so we are depending upon the unlimited, atoning, gracious gift of God through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, bestowing upon us the grace that we need in order to get through life. And the grace that he has, while limitless is limited based upon our yieldedness to the Spirit of Christ. He's not talking about saving grace here. He's talking about serving grace in this text. For grace is about serving. It is serving grace. And serving grace, unlike saving grace, is limited. It is limited. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. So hold on. I know you're going to wonder, what are you talking about here? We'll get there. But it's limited grace. And it is a grace that is limited in the fact that he bestows upon you a grace that is limited in that he gives you the sufficient grace that you need for the moment, for the assignment, and for the task to fulfill the purpose of God. You don't need more serving grace than you need to fulfill the assignment that God bestows upon you. So it's grace to know that when I'm called by God to fulfill an assignment— or to, to fulfill the purpose that God has in my life, that God's grace is always going to be sufficient for me in my moment of need. The Apostle Paul prayed three times for the thorn in his side to be removed, but the answer to his prayer wasn't that the God removed the, the thorn, right? He gave him what? Grace that is sufficient. Grace, when it is bestowed upon us, is always sufficient. Serving grace is always sufficient for the intent to fulfill the purpose of God in and through our lives. He gives you sufficient grace to serve him. So there's never an assignment, there's never responsibility, there's never a task, and there's never a work by which God's going to appoint you or call you to in which he's not going to bestow upon you the grace that you need or the grace that is necessary to accomplish and to fulfill his purpose. So don't be afraid when he, when, when he assigns you a task like Moses. And Moses says, I can't do that. And God assigned to him grace in the form of Aaron, who came alongside of him and enabled him to fulfill the calling that God had on his life. God always gives you the grace that is sufficient. It's limited, but sufficient for that task and for that assignment. But grace, notice it says, was given. It was given. Now, the first thing that comes to my mind is not earned. You can't earn saving grace, and you cannot earn serving grace. But it is a grace that is bestowed upon you. It is 
of the initiation of God. And the grace that Paul is describing here is not a grace that they don't understand or know about, but it's a grace that is already a present reality in the lives of the believers in the church at Ephesus, as well as it is in ours as well. He said, but grace was given, notice to who? To each one. Grace was given to each one. Every one member of the body of Christ and the church at Ephesus was bestowed, was granted grace. Why? Because everybody has an assignment. Everybody has a ministry. And because everybody's assigned a service and everybody's assigned a ministry, everyone then is assigned the grace that is sufficiently necessary to carry out the work of that assignment. So everyone, it's great to know that God doesn't slide anyone. He includes everyone. He is never exclusive when it comes to grace, and he's always inclusive, and he only includes the grace that is necessary in order to meet the requirements of that task. But grace was given to each one, he says, of us. Who's he referring to? Who's the reference here? To believers, those of us who are part of the church at Ephesus, or those of us today who are part of the church of Christ. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. How much grace do I get? According to the measure of Christ's gift. That's how much grace you get. Christ measures the sufficient grace that you need in order to fulfill and to accomplish the task. Now, I, I, uh, I have a recipe here, okay? Uh, how many men cook? I know there's some. How many men try to cook but can't cook? Okay. How many wives wish their husband didn't cook? I've got a recipe here, and I'm going to read it. I'm not going to tell you what it is, and I'm going to see if you can find out what it is before I get to the final ingredient. Are you ready? Are you ready? All right. So put your uh, cooking cap on, and I know it's close to lunch, so uh, try not to let the stomach kind of move you, and we'll see what we can do. Here's the ingredients. Two and a fourth cups of all-purpose flour. Yeah, you know, you know, that could be anything, right? Ingredient number two, one teaspoon of baking soda. Anybody got an idea? No, I said don't say it. <laughs> Keep it to yourself, and you may say it wrong. Number three, a teaspoon of salt. Number three, one cup or two sticks of butter softened. Don't speak it out loud. All right? Three-fourths a cup of granulated sugar. One teaspoon of vanilla extract. Two large eggs. Don't say it out loud. How many of you think you already got it? You know what it is. How many of you don't have a clue? Are you going to know in just a minute? Last ingredient, two cups of Nestle Toll House chocolate chips. Yeah. You cheated over here. Yeah. My daughter and I used to make those ever since she was a little bitty, and that was my father-daughter activity. We used to make chocolate chips together, and uh, I think it was on Father's Day or something one time, she gave me a picture of her and I making chocolate, chocolate chip cookies together. She's probably about four, and she just laughing, stirring that stuff. Well, we had a great time. Uh, I, I make, I don't want to be proud for anything, but I make great chocolate chip cookies. Right, babe? I did. Made some last night, actually. <laughs> when I was thinking about this, 
illustration, Patty said, before we were having dinner, I wish we had some chocolate chip cookies. And I got, and this is perfect. God kind of worked it all great. And I went up there, made some chocolate chip cookies and got some really, really cold milk. And I like them right out of the oven with really cold milk. Man, that's got to be heavenly manna. You know what I'm saying? We're going to be served hot chocolate chip cookies with cold milk in heaven. Gluten-free, of course. But anyway. Every ingredient is necessary to make great chocolate chip cookies. Now, some of you may have an o- your own recipe, and you say, well, I put nuts in mine, and you may have another ingredient that, that, that sort of kicks it up to a second notch. But every ingredient here is necessary to make great chocolate chip cookies. Have you ever forgotten an ingredient? I have. No matter how small, one tablespoon of that one ingredient, you forget that ingredient, it doesn't taste the same. Let's say, for example, instead of a teaspoon, you get a tablespoon of salt. How's that going to taste? It's not going to taste very good. You see, Christ gives to each one of us the measure of the necessary grace in order to make the whole what it needs to be. And so we should never think that we got the short end of the stick because we only got a teaspoon and somebody else got two and a quarter cups. You ought to be thankful you don't need two and a quarter cups of grace because if you did, your assignment's going to need that much grace. You follow me? So don't get jealous because you don't have more serving grace than someone else. The reality is some of us should be thankful because like Paul, he prayed for the thorn to be removed and God gave him sufficient grace to bear the thorn. There are some purposes that God wants to work in and through your life for the benefit and the blessing of all the body and he's going to have to bestow upon you more grace than someone else so that you can carry out the function and the purpose of God. It's also interesting in this thing that you can't forget a single ingredient because if you do, it doesn't work out the same. So I don't care how insignificant you may think you are in the grander scheme of things at Emmanuel Baptist Church, when you're not present and you're not working, your absence is always felt. Because it's an oxymoron for Christ to save you and connect you to a church and then you never attend. He doesn't do that. And so when you're not present and you're not accounted for and you're not involved in working and taking that measure and that assignment that God has given you and putting it to work in the body of Christ, we cannot function, we cannot operate as God intended, and we cannot fulfill the Great Commission. We are the people that God has selected to serve. We have been called as God's people to serve to the measure of the grace which is a gift of Christ that he's bestowed upon us. We are the people. Now, secondly, let's look at the provision for service. There's a provision. There's a provider. And it's interesting that the Apostle Paul kind of takes another turn here. And now he, he, he begins now to address the reason why we are called to serve. He gives us a provider. He then addresses the one who has made it possible for us to serve. Because remember up there he says, was given to each one of us. Only the us here are those of us who are in the faith, who are connected to the church. Unbelievers don't have the grace that is necessary to serve until they have saving grace you don't have serving grace 
And so those of us who have saving grace now have serving grace, and we've been called to serve. And that serving and saving grace has been provided by Christ. And he reminds his readers and us today about the provision that is made possible so that we might serve. Not only the provision, but also the example of service. For Christ came to serve, not to be served. Notice he says in the text in verse 8, therefore it says. Anybody know where it says? He's quoting a passage. It's more likely the Old Testament. He's used this passage before in the book of Acts. It's a passage in Psalm 68. Penned by the penmanship of King David, inspired of the Holy Spirit, I believe. Where in Psalm 68, he describes himself having gone to victory. He has left his throne and he has assembled his troops and they have gone to battle. And they have engaged the enemy. They have left, he's left his throne and he's left his castle and he's gone now to engage the enemy. They fought a battle and they have defeated the enemy. And upon defeating the enemy, they have captured the spoils of their victory. They have liberated some of their own people who have been enslaved over the years because of this kingdom, who are now free. And David and these free slaves and his soldiers and all the spoils are now marching through the streets of Jerusalem, and there's a large parade. And if you can imagine, everybody's flags are waving, and the king comes through with his soldiers and the spoils, and those that were slaves are now set free, and there's a huge celebration. But in Psalms 68, we see that he moves beyond the walls of the city of Jerusalem in the psalm, and he goes all the way to Mount Zion. And the reason why they march all the way to Mount Zion is to give God the the glory and the credit for the victory that was won. He's very quick to understand that even though they were the warriors that God used, it was God who did it, and he wants to give God the glory. And so they were rising up to the Mount of Zion to give God the glory for the victory that they now have. And the spoils are his. And now as the king, he is dispensing those spoils to his loyal subjects, to his people. Paul takes that whole Psalm 68 and brings it down for us today and helps us in this analogy. He describes Christ with Psalm 68. Notice what Paul says about Jesus. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Paul takes King David's psalm and applies it to Christ. And he uses he six times in this text. And each time he has reference here to Jesus. And his reference is this, Christ was in heaven. He was in glory. He was sitting on his throne. He was reigning and ruling with incredible authority at the right hand of the Father. And all of a sudden, it came time now for the Father to send the Son. And he came down and he became incarnate. God became flesh, and he was placed in the womb of Mary, and he was born of a virgin, and he lived a sinless life, and he died a vicarious death on the cross, and he was placed in a tomb, but he rose from the dead three days later, only to, notice this, ascend to the heavens. Follow me? He ascended to the heavens. And Paul is comparing what David said to what Jesus did. 
Jesus was on his throne and he came down to the earth and he engaged in his life in the warfare against Satan and sin and he defeated Satan and sin and death and upon his victory he rose triumphant and he not only left the earth with the, the, the hundreds of witnesses, but he ascended to the heavens, and now he is occupying the rightful place that is his as the sovereign king of kings, the triumphant, victorious Lord, and he has taken the spoils of the enemy, and he's giving them now all of these gifts to his loyal subjects, to his servants. And it is Christ who bestows upon his church and the individual members of his body the gifts that are necessary, the gifts that he took from the enemy, the victory that is now ours through faith in him, so that we might then be equipped to fulfill the ministry that he's called us to fulfill. Isn't it beautiful? And so we see Christ as the triumphant king. But this triumphant king didn't come as a king. He came as a servant. And if you know anything about the whole thing of the disciples and Jesus, you know that in Luke chapter 9, there was a battle going on among the disciples about who was going to be the greatest. And in Luke chapter 9, in regard to this battle, Jesus addresses them and he said, Hey guys, you're clueless, man. You, you're forgetting what I have been teaching you, that the greatest among you is your servant. Now you would have thought coming from the lips of Jesus and from this teaching setting that the disciples caught it the first time. But the disciples are human like you and I are. And because we, like them, are also human, we don't always get the lesson the first time. And we find again in Luke chapter 22, they're having the same discussion about who's going to be the greatest. And Jesus reminds them, guys, I've already told you once, get it the second time. The greatest is the servant. He tells them the greatest is the servant. Now take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 20. The words are not on the screen, and I've decided to make you open your Bibles a little bit during these studies. In, John, in, Mar, in Matthew chapter 20, I want you to notice another parallel passage to, again, a mother who comes to Jesus and wants her boys to sit on the right and the, si the left side of Jesus when he comes to his kingdom. And, and I'm convinced that she's not just there because a mother wants what's best for her children, but she's there because probably her children have agreed to let her come to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, it says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. Notice the sons were with her, James and John. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. She was smart enough to kneel before Jesus and recognize his authority and her humble submission. And he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and the other at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus, when you come to kingdom, I want this son to sit at your right and I want the other to sit at your left. And Jesus answered her and he said, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am drinking? They said to him, we are able. Pretty bold, pretty brass, isn't it? And he said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Remember that, we're going to get to that next. Verse 24, and when the ten heard it, the ten heard what was going on, they're eavesdropping on the conversation, they were indignant at the two brothers, not because of the reason why they asked it or even the dialogue to think, these, I can't believe this mother and these two guys put this up to Jesus. You know, how dare them do that? That was unspiritual for them to do that. That's not why they're upset. I think they're upset because they weren't included. <laughs> they wanted to sit at the right hand and the left side. And but Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers and the Gentiles lord it over them 
and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Verse 28, huge passage. Would have been enough for Jesus to stop there. But he said, even as the Son of Man, referring to himself, came not to be served, but to what? To serve. Jesus did not come to be served. He, in his complete authority and because of divinity, had every right to come and say, serve me. Yet he, King of kings and Lord of lords, triumphant king, did not come to be served. He came to serve. And he's saying, guys, if there's anyone who's deserving of service, it's me. But I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And Jesus is saying, not only am I the provider of the service that you give, and not only have I called you to serve, but I have set for you an example to serve. And if we are ever to become followers and disciples of Christ, we must become servants. For unless we become servants, we are not like Christ. And yet too often the act of service is anything less than what we have anticipated that would be our responsibility in this thing called discipleship. So the provision is through Christ. The position to serve is found through Christ. The position is in verse 11. And he, referencing Christ, gave, Christ gave, he appoints, and he assigns. Remember in the previous verse that we read, the heavenly Father assigns and appoints, what Jesus said, but now it's he, it's Christ, now on the throne, reigning king of kings, triumphant king, now he's there, he is the one now who is assigning in his church those who serve. He appoints and he assigns those who serve. Christ assigns those who serve. We don't wake up one morning and decide where we're going to serve. Christ is the one who appoints where we serve. It's Christ. I didn't ask Brother Andy's permission to say this, but Brother Andy was our interim worship arts pastor, and I guess it's okay for me to tell it. I'm already in it. And uh, he was one of our candidates, and he had made several cuts, and he was still there. And he came to me one day and he said, you know what? God's not calling me to be a worship arts pastor. God is calling me to preach. Remove my name from consideration in Emmanuel Baptist Church. God's calling him to preach. He didn't wake up one day and just said, I decided I think I'm going to preach. I want to preach. It's not his role and responsibility to assign his assignment. That's not how it happens. We're looking for a worship arts pastor, and there are three right now in consideration. God only has one for us to bring. We can't bring all three. And the objective is for us to then seek out who's God, who, who God has already assigned and appointed to be in this place. And when he comes, believe it, he's going to need plenty of grace. You may say that again. He's going to need plenty of grace. He's going to need a lot of grace. God assigns the position and the place. He's the one, Christ, who appoints. But notice in this text, and the idea in the context here is, that he doesn't assign the person with the spiritual gifts necessary to accomplish the task for himself. When he assigns and he equips with the grace, the spiritual gifts that are necessary to perform the job, these gifts are not for his own use. They are for the use of the body. In other words, they are given to the individual for the overall good of the whole. 
They are not yours to spend or exhaust on your own needs, but on the needs of the body of Christ for the whole church. Whether it's financial or spiritual, it doesn't matter. God bestows upon us certain things so that through us, he can be a blessing to the body of Christ and to build up the kingdom of Christ. And many of us get it backwards, especially some of us who come from the charismatic background, who think that that God wants all of us to be wealthy and healthy and, and all of these great things for our own benefit and for our own good. If we had the favor of God, we'd be this and that. God gives us the favor and the grace so that through us, he can be a blessing to accomplish and achieve the great commission. That's the only reason why he's given you what you have, because what you have is not yours, it's his, and it's a living trust by which you're to use to invest in his kingdom. And what did he give? He says, he lists basically several things, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And I could go into all that, but I don't have time. And so I'm just going to sort of culminate it with basically this. Remember in Ephesians chapter 2, I think it says verse 20. I could be wrong, but I think it's verse 20. It's not in my notes. It's in my, in my head, I hope. It's maybe in my heart. But in Ephesians 2.20, I think he said that the church was built on the foundation of these, these, these gifts, these callings. And now he's saying that the church is going to be, be matured through these sort of callings. But this, this is not an exhaustive list of, of spiritual giftedness. Some say there are 12, and some say there are 18. I like 18. Some say there are 21. I've heard others say 28. I'm not sure how many spiritual gifts there are and how many equippings and callings there are. But we see here these specific ones, and they are for the purpose of investing in the kingdom. These are positions that God appoints and God endows spiritual gifts in order to accomplish and fulfill these. And you have a spiritual gift to fulfill a spiritual calling that benefits the body of Christ. And I ask you, What is yours? My wife hates this joke, but I'm going to tell it anyway. It's in my head, and it's going to come out. Two Cajuns, you know, who were were lumberjacks fell into hard times because of the economy. They went to uh, Lake Charles to look for a job, and to their surprise, they were driving around in a circle in downtown, and they saw uh, an airline that was advertising for for positions and one brother said I'll go in and apply and you drive around and when I get through I'll go in and apply you go in and apply and I'll drive around so the first brother went in and a couple of minutes later came out jumped in the car so you're not gonna believe they gave me a job making two hundred thousand dollars an hour a year two hundred thousand dollars a year you going to get you one of those jobs he said I will so he went in the other brother drove around he was applying for the job you know filled out the application sent it to the guy the guy looked at him and said I'm sorry we, we don't have a position for you he said why not I said you don't have any skills he said, well, I got the same skills as my brother. He said, who's your brother? Oh, my brother's Tubido. He just came in here a while ago, and you gave him a job, and he's making $200,000 a year. He said, you know, he and I share the same kind of skills. He said, well, mister, he said, your brother said that he was a pilot. And he looks at me, scratches his head, and will say, well, sir, my brother can't pilot till I cut it. <laughs> Told you it was bad. Get it? One cut and one piling. I'm going to have to explain it to you guys a little slow today. <clears throat> Everybody has a role and a function of responsibility. It is bad, but it does make the point. Whether you're piling or cutting or piloting a plane, you're to fulfill your calling and your role and your responsibility. What is your spiritual giftedness and what is your assignment in the body of Christ? 
And he goes right in now to the position, to the purpose. You see, there's a reason why God has assigned you a responsibility and he's equipped you with spiritual gift and the grace that is necessary. He says in order, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. It's interesting. He says there is a purpose in all this. He says in verse 12 that those assignments, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers are to equip the saints. They are to equip. To equip the word equip in some translations, Strong says it's a word that means perfection. Well, I've been doing this for 36 years, and I'm not sure perfection is the best word to translate equip because I've not met any perfect people yet in 36 years of pastoring. Now, some of you come closer than others, but you're not perfect. So I'm not sure perfection is the best, best word. But it's interesting that all of the, the, the commentaries that I study, MacArthur had an interesting uh, 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 definition for this word. He said the word is basically a medical term, which means in a medical term, it is to set bones back into their order. It's what a chiropractor does. You ever been to one of those? And they twist you and they turn you, and when you get through, you feel better because everything's in its place. It's where God designed it. It's where it's supposed to be. And I think that, that rather, the, instead of perfection, I think the word basically could mean that in that it's the responsibility of the, the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the shepherd, and the teacher in order to, to assess the body of Christ and to and to to maneuver it so that all of us fit exactly in the body where Christ intended for us to fit so that the body of Christ can function as it's supposed to function so that we can then accomplish and fulfill the Great Commission. Every bone is necessary, and every bone is necessary in its proper lining and in its proper function. And whenever that is out of sync, the body doesn't operate properly. And maybe the reason why some churches, if not our church, is not fulfilling the Great Commission that God has called it to fulfill isn't because of a pastor or isn't because of a certain worship leader or because of a certain apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, or teacher, but it's because we as the members of the body of Christ are not aligning ourselves where we're supposed to be, being used by God with the giftedness that he's called us to fulfill within the body of Christ. Because as these people equip the saints for what? The work of ministry. It is not the responsibility of the senior pastor to do all the ministry. Granted, since uh, we don't have a worship arts pastor, and since David left, and since um, uh, uh, April is, is down with Mel in Houston for another 10 days, and he's going to be doing some radiation, being prayed for them. There's a lot going on, and there's a lot of us who wear multiple hats. But I'm here to tell you, with the membership size that we have and the size church that we have, we're never going to fulfill the Great Commission on called staff. And part of our weakness is, in the past, we've sought to hire help. And I think the reason why large churches hire help is because the people who are a part of the body of Christ are just flat out not willing to do the work, so we hire somebody to get it done. But the fact is that we're in a financial condition because of the economy and because of some of the ways that have happened here in our church, many unemployed and many moved out and some have died, whatever. We've not been able to hire the people that we once had. And I've said to the personnel and I've said to the finance committee, the expectations of Emmanuel are the same as if we're running 1,400, 1,500, but we're only running about 800. So how in the world are we going to maintain your expectations running 800 as if we were still running 1,400? 
When we were running 1,400, we had 40 or 50 staff. Was that about right, Roseanne? I didn't ask her this before I got here. That's a whole lot of people. And some of you were down in the COC while we were paying people to sit there, and you were the volunteer, and you were working harder than the, as a volunteer than the person we were paying. Can I get him into that? You don't grow a church with hired personnel. It's up to the membership of the body of Christ for everyone assuming their responsibility and their role with the grace that God has bestowed upon you involved in the ministry that God has assigned you for the overall good in the alignment of the church. No one has been called to sit, soak, and sour. We've been called to serve. And the work of the ministry is for us as the ministers to equip you for the work of ministry. I like it that it calls it ministry because it reminds me there's a spiritual dimension to what we do. And if it ever ceases to be a spiritual thing and becomes a numbers thing or a performance thing, we're in deep trouble. And then lastly, for the building up the body of Christ. The building up the body of Christ. In short, it talks about the inward and the outward effects of the ministry. It's for maturity and it's for missions. The building up, the edification of the body of Christ Everything we say and everything we do should be to edify the church. When you're putting it down, you're not edifying it. But it's more than just about words. It's about an internal thing. Where we are then to put our resources, our spiritual giftedness, our time and our talent, our treasure to use so that the the body of Christ can grow in Christ, to become like Christ, to mature like Christ, to look like him, to mature. We should all be striving for maturity. And what you do and what I do and we all do in our giftedness as we put it together, it helps all of us grow to maturity. It's an inward thing. But at least we become a lot of churches who only focus inwardly. We need to focus outwardly as much as we focus inwardly. It's a 50-50 thing. For 50% of our time should be inward focus on our own development, our own maturity, our own children, our own students, our own music. Those, those things are important. But I think there's 50% that we've been called to the missional thing. Because there's no way in the world that we can fulfill the Great Commission to go into all the world if we focus only on the internal thing. And part of the edification of the body is the calling to missions. Because if you notice part of the giftedness that's there, it's the gift and the calling of evangelism. And teaching has a, a, a sort of a, 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 a backward entrance to that as well, although it references the saints. And so... The purpose for which we're here is to mature and to reach. And we do that through equipping, through serving, and through going and telling the good news of Christ. At least we become like that parable that's described in this beautiful parable. And I wish I had time to read it in Matthew 25, but we don't. About where Jesus gives in the, this incredible parable about this, this steward, this king. He's going to go in on, on a journey, and he gives one five talents, one four, one three, one two, and one one. And he says, invest that when I come back. And he finally comes back after a period of time. And everyone has had 
an increase. Everyone's been productive except the guy that got one. And if my memory's right, he buried it. Why? Because he thought, I better bury it because if I don't bury it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose it. If I, if I invest it and I make a, a bad investment, then, then I'm not going to have a return on it. So I'd rather bury it and have the one that he gave me rather than invest it. And I'm convinced there are a lot of people like that guy who have a talent, they have a calling, and they have buried their talent and their calling, and they're not investing it. And one of these days, you're going to stand, we will stand before Christ and give an account of that talent, and he's going to look at us and say the same thing. Why do you invest in my kingdom? kingdom well it was your kingdom it wasn't mine so I, I didn't think you'd be fair so I just decided I'd bury it and just kind of squabble along and and reap the benefit of everybody else's work and what will he say on accountability day we've been called to give and we give through service. You need your brother, you need your sister, you need the people across the aisle and down the, down the aisle from you, and we need all to be a part and to be actively involved in serving each other. Because it's in that service. No matter how small and minuscule you may think it is, you may think, you know, I, I'm serving, it's, in, it's not really that important. I mean, we got some guys on some cameras here. You probably don't even know they're here. Was that an important job? we got some guys in the back booth back there who serve. You don't even know they're there. I mean, every job is significantly important to not only our spiritual development, but to carry the gospel beyond the four walls of this church in the city of Wichita and around the world. But we've been called to maturity and missions. And without you, bringing the whole down to, to the individual responsible person that we should be. To be like Christ as his disciple, we will serve. Why? Because he set the example for us. Because he came to serve. That's why he saved us, was to serve. And we ought to get involved in service, and we ought to be glad to be in service. No getting into service and be grumpy. <laughs> but be glad that you've been called, signed, gifted with the grace that is necessary and the spiritual development that is necessary, the giftedness, whatever it is, to fulfill that task for the overall good of the body of Christ to grow internally, but also to take the message to a lost world to grow externally because that is our call. That is your call is the call to serve. Let's pray.
This morning, again, we get to celebrate the ordinance of baptism. We have two coming to share their testimony that they have received Christ and are now his followers. This is Kaylee. And Kaylee was sharing with me that she received Jesus Christ as her savior and as her boss. In Awana, she prayed with Miss Wendy and asked Jesus to come into her heart to be her savior and her boss. And Kaylee, is it your desire to be a follower of Jesus? And since you've given your life to him, do you want to follow him from now until the end of time and to be the follower that he's called you to be? Because of that decision, it's my privilege this morning to get to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. If you're here this morning and you're part of Kaylee's family or life group, would you stand as we baptize her this morning? Kaylee, it's my privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're buried with Christ in baptism. Raise the water in newness of life. Roberto has been coming for some weeks now. And last Wednesday night, he came into Body Life, and we were sitting at a table, several of the men, and he began to share with us his conversion story about when he asked Jesus to come into his heart and to be his Savior and his Lord. And he looked at us and he said, is there any reason that I can't go ahead and be baptized this Sunday because I've already done that? And um, if you all are excited about a man who will come and be willing to take that stand, would you just say amen? amen. If you're part of Roberto's family or his life group and you're here to celebrate with him this morning, would you please stand? Roberto, have you asked Jesus to come into your heart to be your savior and your boss? And is it your desire to follow him from this day forward and to be marked as a believer in Jesus and his follower? Yes. Because of your decision, it's my privilege this morning to get to baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're buried with Christ in baptism and we're raised to walk in newness of life.